people talk about, have been talking about it for months and months, as you know, and I think it's time we put it to bed finally and said either we can do it and this is how we would do it or we can't and this is the reason why. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was the voice of B.C. Premier John Horgan talking yesterday about a proposed B.C. interprovincial travel ban. COVID is raging in Alberta, Ontario, Quebec. Should B.C. build a virtual wall along the border, a keep-out sign? You're from Alberta? You're not allowed in. You're from Ontario or Quebec? Forget about it. You're not allowed in either. Could the government really do this? Well, Horgan said yesterday they're taking a look at it, and Horgan said he's just doing what the people want him to do. Here he is. Well, I, I hear from not just from uh, the media, but from British Columbians that they're concerned about uh, people coming from elsewhere when they're making sacrifices of their own. Uh, we saw a whole uh, slew of stories after the Christmas break about politicians who chose to travel, uh, not from British Columbia or not from certainly from uh, the Legislative Assembly, uh, but uh, right across the country. And that led to a firestorm of frustration and anger because Canadians and British Columbians are making sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices is staying close to home, not traveling to see loved ones, not going to tend to what would have been traditions or uh, pressing matters, uh, the loss of life of a loved one in another part of the country. So uh, it's been clear that this is a public interest. All right, Premier John Horgan yesterday talking about a possible travel ban from uh, provinces outside of British Columbia. Can BC really do this? What about the constitutionally protected mobility rights of Canadians? Let's talk about this now with my guest, Michael Bryant, Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning to you. What were your thoughts when you heard this from the B.C. Premier yesterday? Well, I'm glad that they're seeking legal advice, which is more than the uh, Newfoundland government did before they put their travel ban into place. We brought a challenge in Newfoundland and, and quickly discovered that they didn't start looking at whether or not they could do it legally until after we brought the challenge. So that's a good start. Uh, they'll need to uh, really assess two things. Number one, uh, is it uh, absolutely necessary? Because we're talking about a constitutional right that would be violated. Section 6 of the Charter says Canadians have mobility rights, which means, you know, I live in Ontario, but um, I, I can go uh, anywhere in the country because I'm a right. Canadian. Yeah. Uh, so do they have data that, that would uh, necessitate this? And I, I don't know if the um, the number of non-BC resident infections are coming in through the airports or coming uh, i doubt they're coming across the border i doubt you're getting that many people crossing the border um you know in uh, certainly they're not there there can't be that many people crossing the border the eastern border that is and uh ending up in kamloops Kelowna, or um or any of the cities golden say along the border uh it, 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 or is this a vancouver victoria issue so they need to get that data. They, they can't do it because it's popular, or because a poll yeah. shows that, that it, there's a political reason. They need a, they need a, really, they need an empirical reason. And then secondly, is it proportionate? Is there any other way that they could address this issue? And, and the answer is obviously, well, yeah, they could. 
they could put in place uh, a provincial quarantine requirement that says if you're going to come in the province, you need to quarantine for a period of time. Now, that would be less restrictive on mobility rights. It, it would be restrictive on mobility rights. I'm not saying that they should do it, but no. the, the, requ- the Constitution would require that they limit the right as little as possible. Okay, speaking to Michael Bryant from Canadian Civil Liberties Association, speaking of the mobility rights of Canadians, so I'm, I'm looking at the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms right now, Section 6, as, as you mentioned, very clear, every citizen of Canada has the right to move to, take up residence in any province, pursue a living in any province, the right to enter and remain in these provinces. That looks pretty clear. But as a, as a lawyer and expert on this stuff, even the chart, the rights that are enshrined in the charter, they all have limits, right? Like any, any, right. Of, these, any of these rights can, can be overridden. That's right. And so the, t- the test, uh, and, and that gets worked out under Section 1 of the charter. And, and it requires that the Attorney General of British Columbia demonstrably justify uh, the limit. And, yeah. and demonstrably means you need evidence, you can't have a poll. And justify, it really breaks down to these two issues that I mentioned. Is it necessary? Right. And is it proportionate? Is there another way to limit this right that doesn't limit it as um, restrictively, obviously, as a travel ban. The other thing that the province will find quickly is no matter how many exceptions they carve out, uh, there there would need to be a process for people seeking an exception. I mean, in the case of Newfoundland, it was a Halifax woman in Nova Scotia who wanted to go to her mom's funeral uh, in Newfoundland, and she was willing to quarantine and actually have the funeral in the backyard. Uh, and they said no. So the, the, these are the, you know, you get uh, circumstances that you couldn't have imagined that, that, a, that a province would say, hmm, I, we're not really trying to stop people from going to their mom's funerals. We don't have that many of those things going on. So the, the you know, it, it's always the case that the, sometimes the exception defines the rule. And in this case, they, they just have to look at the data. And I, I look, I would be, I understand that when you see a couple of cases of COVID showing up in an emergency room in the residences of uh, Ontario and Quebec, you, yeah. I can understand why the emergency doctor would get pissed off about that. But the but you know you don't bring in a new law because of something that happened involving two people. You bring it in because there's a real trend of a real risk, not an imagined risk, and th- then that proves the necessity part. And then the second part is proportionality. Is there another way for them to get at this issue? And right. even though I know the premier says they want to deal with it once and for all, I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that. But nevertheless, we're going to get an answer from them soon. And, and certainly we have offered to provide our two cents. I know the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association also has offered to provide their two cents. And, um, and I, I have no doubt that they'll be getting appropriate legal advice. And then hopefully they'll make a decision based on that advice and not based on mm-hmm. politics. Okay, you mentioned the province of Newfoundland and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association had intervened there. Was there not a a successful bubble, travel bubble put up around the Maritimes? Weren't they able to do that? Uh, they they did put into place a uh, travel ban in Newfoundland. Um, in fact, the the Atlantic bubble uh, didn't last very long because pretty quickly within the bubble, the various provinces put in their own ban. So there was no bubble, really. Uh, mm. What there is, is most of the Atlantic provinces themselves have a travel ban. 
And that's because once one put up a travel ban, it politically became difficult for others not to put up a travel ban. Well, that's exactly uh, a circumstance where the Constitution is supposed to stop the province from doing it because, you know, there is no necessity. They're just doing it because their neighbour does it. This is the other problem with um, British Columbia bringing in a travel ban. Of course, Alberta will then be under great political pressure to bring in their own travel ban right. and then Manitoba and then on and on and on it goes. And the idea is we're supposed to, as Canadians, try to do more together than we can apart. And a travel ban is, is really like the opposite of that uh, approach to, uh, to trying to improve the public health of all oh. Canadians. Okay, bottom line it for me here, my final question. What does your gut tell you about the kind of legal advice or if this thing ever did get tested in front of a judge, would it be would it stand up at all? I mean, my I mean, you're the expert, but my gut feeling is in just reading the charter that I don't see how this this would stand. But what do you, what are your thoughts? Could yeah. this possibly yeah. be done? Yeah, I agree uh, with you. Uh, but but uh, but, you know, uh, full disclosure, uh, you know, I am the head of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. So, uh, um, you know, our view is <laughs> that it is not necessary and it would not be proportionate at this right. time based on the facts on the ground as we have them. All right. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith here. Here we go with the latest on the Site C Dam mega project now, the biggest public sector project in BC history. British Columbia has already spent $6 billion on this massive hydroelectric dam on the Peace River. Billions more set to be spent to complete the project. But massive engineering and technical problems up there, especially with the unstable land base next to the Peace River where they're trying to build this dam. They're pouring tons and tons of concrete up there to try and stabilize things. But the project's already gone way over budget. Lots of concerns. Should British Columbia just walk away from this thing? Six billion bucks down the drain? Will they walk away and just leave a hole in the ground up there? The government doesn't rule it out. Now, yesterday, Premier John Horgan gave an update on the project. There was a key report expected to be released here any day. Turns out that uh, the government's going to get more reports on what's going on up there. Have a listen to this. This is Horgan yesterday. Milburn uh, worked with the information that was available to him, uh, the fix that's been proposed by Hydro, and uh, we're now asking for two other opinions on the efficacy of that fix. I don't have the name of the contractors. They're outside of British Columbia, as far as I know, or certainly they're international experts in this area. Uh, this isn't to say that, uh, that Milburn's report isn't comprehensive, but it is also uh, appropriate that we make sure that if the fix is being that is being proposed to the geotechnical challenge uh, is going to be safe and uh, we want to out of an abundance of caution we're asking for a second and a third opinion on that okay we sure are getting lots of reports and reviews of this project now the government bringing in experts from the united states and also from norway to take a look at the Site C Dam now. What should be done about this project? we got some great guests on this first. Let's talk to Sonia first and all the leader of the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. So happy to be here, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. I know that you you obviously have followed this uh, this project very closely. We were hoping to get this report that's been under wraps for uh, for some time now and you heard uh, Horgan refer to it briefly there a report from Peter Milburn right like what is the what is the status of that report because I thought that was the big one we were all waiting for and that's still under wraps right I think under wraps might be the key term here Mike there's 
quarterly reports that were supposed to be released to the public regularly. We haven't seen one of those since March of last year. There's the Project Assurance Board that the Premier brought in in 2017 to make sure that there was excellent oversight and lots of public access to what was happening at Site B, Site C. Well, not only do we not know who's on that board, but we have had nothing from them. Then we had the Milburn report, and that was in the summer. They said, oh, no, we're going to get Peter Milburn, and we'll have that report by fall. Yeah. Well, that didn't come until apparently a couple of weeks ago. And now we can't see that report, but now we're going to get two more expert yeah. reports. It, it, it's, it's starting to become almost farcical, except that, as you point out, we are talking billions of dollars being spent. We are talking about the destruction of a river ecosystem in some of the most uh, excellent agricultural land we have in this province. And, and we're talking about infringement on treaty rights uh, that is, is shocking in 2020. So the, the kind of listening to the premier yesterday, and, and you just playing that clip just now, they're kind of like, well, I don't really know their names. They, this is <laughs> an astonishingly expensive project. I would expect the premier to know everything that's going on. With this can, you, can you briefly describe the problem up there with the, the geotechnical challenges and the problems they've got with the with the land base up there? Like, what has been the problem there with building this thing? Well, I mean, I'm I'm going to be repeating things that I've been reading and learning and 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 following along with. But uh, a couple of the big problems. One is that this isn't most dams happen in in canyons where. You know, there's not a lot of river uh, space, but this is an extremely wide stretch of the Peace River. It's not yeah. in a bedrock canyon. It's actually on shale. And, and one of the most illuminating moments for me in the last few months was seeing Sarah Cox uh, on a webinar, you know, showing what she meant by shale. And we think, I think, you know, I was, up until then, I thought that kind of hard gray rock. No, no, this is like sand. <laughs> They're building yeah. a giant dam on effectively sand and surprise surprise they're finding out that there's lots of problems and we have the geotechnical problems uh, that stem from this and the fact that they've changed the design nobody's ever built a dam like this before like it's it, it's it you know we're going to look back on this the history books are going to talk about bc's greatest boondoggle yeah. and i can tell you it is site c Okay, is there an argument that at some point you have put so much money into this project, you have gone so far that you pass that point of no return? I mean, that is the argument that John Horgan made a few years ago when he was originally opposed to this project. He becomes premier, did a flip-flop and said, we're going to build it anyway, because he said, look, it's, we've just spent too much money. You know, we've it gone was, past the yeah. point of no return. At that no. point, we had spent $4 billion. We've spent $2 billion more now. So there's $6 billion. Like, I kind of think of it like a like a, a poker game, if you've ever heard a poker term, that you're, you're pot committed, which means that there's there's so much money on the table, you can't fold your hand. you got to stick through it to the, to the very end. Is, is that a valid argument in your mind? I mean, $6 billion mm-hmm. has been spent, so we can't walk away now. Well, one, your poker analogy is great because I think, you know, any kind of support group for gamblers would say uh, that's bad thinking. And it's bad thinking here. It's a a sunk cost fallacy. So the idea that you've spent a certain amount of money and therefore you can't stop spending, even though the price tag, Mike, they can't give us a price tag anymore. It's 10 billion. It's 12 billion. Is it going to be 15 billion? Is it going to be 20 billion? 
uh, and and at the you know in 2017 when they said we've we've gone past the point of no return that wasn't true the report that they got from BCUC at that point said you could produce the same amount of electricity for the same cost or less at that point using renewable uh, yeah. renewable energy projects distributed around the province, which would be far better for local economies and for sustainability but, overall. But if we've we've already spent $6 billion, they've done a ton of work up there. The current budget is, what, over $10 billion. So, you know, supposedly they're going to spend another $4 billion and the, and the thing will be done. But I think it'll go even higher than that. But at some point, I mean, does it make sense to just keep building? And the reason why I think maybe logically it and arguably it is, it does make sense to continue building the project is because we need clean energy, right? We need zero emission clean energy. And this is this is clean renewable energy up there that we're going to need more of it, especially everybody everybody's buying electric cars. We need this stuff. Yeah, we need clean energy, but this right. is this is again, there's a fallacy about this being clean energy. The methane that will come from the reservoir from the damming of is is uh, significant, but and the destruction of of the environment in the in the building of this, the concrete, the amount of you know now we're going to find it. We find out a couple of days ago that there's going to be 122 trucks per hour for seven months, a year, for three years. Uh, how much clean energy will it take to uh, address the emissions from that transportation? Like when you when you dig into this a little bit, uh, you have to go beyond the you know the We've spent this much money. Okay. I, I get it. It's terrible that we've spent this much money. We never should have. And the problem is, I don't think, given what independent experts say about this project and, and about the geotechnical problems, I don't think you can guarantee that it's ever going to work or that it doesn't pose an incredible safety risk uh, for its entire existence. Okay, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine now. Lots of people waiting to get their shot, but there have been those reports of some doctors in Vancouver jumping the queue to get a second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Premier John Horgan was asked about it yesterday. Here's what he said. These are difficult issues. Everyone has a good case to make. I don't need to inventory them. I'm sure there will be a raft of stories between now and the last drop of vaccine distributed about who should go where in the lineup. I want the public to know that we're going to make sure we do our best to prioritize those who are at the greatest risk. And our, our understanding at this point in time is the older you are, the more at risk you are. So that's how we're going to prioritize going forward. Okay, John Horgan talking about queue jumpers for the vaccine. Disappointing to see that, especially when lots of people with in long-term care are still waiting for the vaccine. Let's check in now with Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, represents long-term care in the province. Terry, thank you for coming on once again. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thank you. When you heard about some of these doctors jumping the queue for the vaccine, that's got to be frustrating, especially for people in long-term care. Uh, extremely frustrating and you know I, I mean obviously don't know all the details and you know the, the situations but anyone that uh, would jump the line in, inappropriately um, you know just means one fewer person that is uh, really needing the vaccine that won't get it so we have our most vulnerable citizens in long-term care and assisted living and appropriately they should be first in line for the vaccine. Right. What is the status right now of long-term care residents and staff in terms of the vaccine rollout? 
Well, uh, from our understanding, we don't get, you know, daily updates on the numbers. Uh, we, we see some from Vancouver Coastal, for instance, and we see some from other health authorities, but we don't get a comprehensive view of the whole province. But my understanding from talking to um, health ministry officials was the plan was by, you know, uh, within a week, we should have everyone covered by the first uh, inoculation. So there will be some uh, workers that uh, may refuse the vaccine. There may be some COVID-positive residents and workers that will not get the vaccine uh, at this particular time. But by and large, the vast majority of workers and residents in long-term care and assisted living should be covered by the first vaccine within the next week. Okay, that's good to hear. What about some of the staff? Like we've heard about care aides, for example. Is there some sort of loophole there that some people are not not getting the vaccine or some of them are continuing to work at multiple facilities? What's happening there? Uh, well, uh, health care aides uh, certainly would be in line uh, to get the vaccine. Uh, uh, we did a, or through SafeCare PC, which is a, a partner organization looking after health and safety, uh, they did a survey that indicated about 15% of people would refuse the vaccine that work in long-term care. Um, what we're seeing uh, in reality is that people are stepping up in much greater numbers, especially where there has been an outbreak of COVID because people just you know, have firsthand knowledge of, of the uh, impact of COVID on long-term care. So we are seeing uh, a lot of participation, but you know, we expect there will be some folks that, uh, that refuse the vaccine. And, you know, we're calling on the government to make sure that if that is the case, that these folks be subject to mandatory rapid testing on a regular basis to make sure that we don't expose uh, residents. Right. Speaking to Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, we followed the issues around long-term care closely on the show here earlier this week. I had Isabel McKenzie on the show, of course, BC's independent advocate for seniors who's been calling for that rapid testing regimen for COVID and care homes, something that you've been campaigning for as well. Where are we at on that one? Is there any chance we're going to get this rapid testing system into the care homes in British Columbia? Well, I hope so. There's a pilot ongoing in Vancouver Coastal uh, at four long-term care sites. Uh, We have had discussions with Fraser Health about them getting involved, and and we've also reached out to the other health authorities. I mean, this should have been done back in the early fall, and we should have had it instituted on a widespread basis by now. And in fact, today, Health Canada's expert panel uh, on uh, testing uh, does recommend the use of, of uh, these screening tests in wow. in uh, appropriate places like long term care. So, Dr. Mel Krajan, uh who is uh, you know with the uh, the provincial ministry of health, was on that panel. So that's very encouraging for us. It, it shows that there's momentum to institute uh, rapid testing, and uh, you know better late than never. Especially now, Mike, that the uh, makers of the Pfizer vaccine have said that there will be a bit of a delay in March right. and April. So it's more reason than ever to get uh, rapid testing going. I really don't understand the resistance to it. I mean, if it's okay for professional hockey players in the NHL or people moving, working on movie sets, I don't know why it's not okay for, for residents of, of long-term care. Are, are you starting, you mentioned there's a pilot project going on. Are you starting to, to sense some sort of lessening of the resistance of this? And maybe we'll, maybe we'll see these rapid tests introduced. I mean, if we got these tests, like, are they just well, lying yeah. around not being used? I mean, <laughs> my understanding is there's 900,000 of these tests. 
yeah. sitting in boxes somewhere here in BC, paid for by the federal government that we have not used. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I understand that, you know, you want the most accurate test possible, but these are screening tests, Mike. So you think about, you know, breast cancer screening, you go for a mammogram. That's a screening test. You don't have a diagnostic plan created from your screening test. You then go for a biopsy, which is more of a diagnostic test. So this right. is no different. So I really don't know why there's a hesitancy to institute screening. Okay, we follow that one. Continue. We continue to follow that one closely. My guest is Terry Lake from the BC Care Providers Association. Well, earlier this week on the show, Terry, I, I spoke to Brenda Brophy, who is um, a, a lady in Victoria whose mom was deteriorating in long-term care. She she brought her home. And it's great for her that she was able to care for her mother at home. Lots of people don't have the same option. She was worried about her mom deteriorating while she was unable to visit her and help care for her. And she is now starting a campaign to increase visitation in care homes, have more people in with personal protective equipment to care for their loved ones, their parents, in some cases their spouses. Where are we at with that? Like, is that a concern for you? Would you like to see more opportunities for family members to visit their loved ones and care for their loved ones in long-term care? Absolutely, Mike. I think when we look back on what we did to um, you know, to deal with COVID and long-term care and assisted living, we will we will wonder why we separated families and allowed so many vulnerable elderly residents. Uh, to live basically in solitary confinement for so long when, in fact, the virus wasn't getting in through family visits. They were getting in through workers that were not being screened adequately. Uh, I think this is a real gap. And, you know, we have the most restrictive visitation policies in Canada. And the second wave of COVID has had a huge impact on long-term care, despite those very strict uh, visitor uh, limitations. We finally saw the um, the issuing of the essential visitor uh, interpretive guide by the Ministry of Health that we've been asking about for months, and that does provide some clarity. And I would just encourage families to uh, look at that guide and um, see if it's appropriate for them to be deemed an essential visitor to visit their elderly resident uh, family members on a regular basis. And of course, a, a social, a designated social visitor as well. So that that will hopefully increase opportunities for visits. Okay. Could you could you briefly define those those categories? Like, what is an essential visitor, and what is a what was the other one called? A social vis- designated social yeah, visitor. Exactly, an essential visitor is is a family member, or it could be someone that uh, acts on behalf of the family, but someone that that really provides. Um, essential help to the resident in care. And that may be people with dementia, for instance, uh, may not uh, eat well unless they have that essential visitor with them to spend some time, perhaps up to an hour, hour and a half, and that's the only way that they eat properly. Uh, Perhaps uh, there's some uh, issues around the mental health of the resident that is deteriorating without that family member there on a regular basis. All of these uh, sort of activities are deemed essential to the mental and physical well-being of the resident. And when I talk to the seniors advocate, you know, Isabel says that probably 80% of residents in long-term care uh, need to have that essential visitor. It does make a difference to their mental and physical health. 
Right, and then you have another category called a designated social visitor, right? How does that one work, briefly? Right, so this is someone uh, designated uh, that would visit for usually uh, 30 minutes to a one-hour visit once a week. So an essential caregiver can go in every day. Uh, But then on top of that, a social designated visitor uh, could go on a weekly basis. And again, that would increase the quality of life for residents in care. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks Uh, for uh, shining a light on this. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk Bitcoin now. The popular cryptocurrency has made some people rich as it soared in value. Bitcoin has been on a roller coaster ride lately, though, in its valuation. Are people still willing to take the plunge here? Meanwhile, the heartbreaking saga of the San Francisco man who forgot his Bitcoin password. He's got over... $200 million in Bitcoin. He can't get at it because he forgot his password. Let's discuss now with my guest, Mitchell Demeter. He is a cryptocurrency industry pioneer. He's the co-founder of the world's first Bitcoin ATM, and he's the president of Netcoins. Mitchell, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Tell me about the wild ride here that Bitcoin is on. Has Bitcoin values gone gone down steeply here in the last few days? Is that what's going on? Um, Bitcoin's pulled back a little bit over the last few days, but uh, it's still significantly up. Um, we started la- the beginning of last year in around 7,000 US, and we, we closed off the year at about 28,000. Right now, we're Whoa. sitting at about just under 36,000 US. So, so it's pulled back a bit from the highs that it made last week, but uh, but we're still up significantly and, and gaining traction. Okay, so where what's the outlook now? Like, is it still like a lot of people are saying like, could, could this be a crash that we're looking at here right now? Yeah, I think overall the trend is up. Um, we've we've got a ton of big names coming into the space. Um, Square, PayPal just started accepting uh, or making it available to their users. Um, we've got big companies like MicroStrategy um, starting to hold a large portion of their corporate treasuries in Bitcoin as a hedge against potential inflation. Uh, we've wow. also got a lot of big reputable investors like Paul Tudor Jones and Druckenmiller publicly announcing that they're starting to invest in Bitcoin. So I think now more than ever, it, the writings on the wall that uh, Bitcoin's here to stay. I remember when Bitcoin started, and at the time, I guess it was considered to be like a, an alternative currency. Like you know, people could use it as a virtual way to pay for stuff online, whether it's like a PayPal or whatever. But it seems like it's turned more into kind of a a, a, a speculative investment, or maybe it's a safe haven. Like, do you think it's kind of become more like sort of gold? If people look at it and say, in uncertain times, maybe it's a place to park your money. Like, people might buy gold. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's very commonly referred to as the digital version of gold. Um, and yeah. just like gold, there's a finite amount that'll ever be in existence. Um, there'll only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, and so. Um, in the early days, it was kind of, you know, set up and, and portrayed as a digital currency. Yeah. Oh. And um, oh. and it, it it's oh sorry, you're cutting out a little bit there, Mike. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yep. Sorry, I can hear okay. you now. So, Carry so on. yeah, in, in the early days, it was definitely, you know, the initial plan was to have it set up as a currency, um, but it, it's more and more being used as a store of value in gold. 
Yeah, risky investment though, right? Like, I mean, I've thought about it. I, I thought, well, should I put some money in this thing? I don't know. It just seems so speculative and, and risky. Like, like, what's the smallest amount like people can buy? Like, what's the smallest unit you can buy? Yeah, with it? yeah, definitely. So, so we can uh, the platform we've built out, Netcoins.ca. We made it really easy for people to get involved, and uh, you can buy as little as fifty dollars, or you can invest okay. a percentage of your net worth. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, what about this guy who forgot his password? Like, I, I find this extraordinary. This is a story that has flashed around the world. This guy in San Francisco, his name is Stefan Thomas, and he lost his password. He forgot his password on a thumb drive that's got all his Bitcoin inside. Uh, and now he's he's up to, you get 10 attempts to enter the password. He's used up eight of his password attempts. He's only got two attempts left. And if he enters two more wrong passwords, it sounds like, what, he loses all his money? He loses all his Bitcoin? Is that true? Yeah. So, wow. so unfortunately, this isn't the first time I've heard of a situation like this. And um, basically what happens is when you're in possession of your own coins, you're also in possession of your own keys and passwords. And so it's it's a lot like you know if you lose your wallet and it's full of cash and the wallet's gone, then the cash is gone. And so... So there's there's two different ways you can hold your Bitcoin. Um, one is in a encrypted thumb drive or a hardware wallet, and um, you know there, there's a lot of precautions and measures you can take to make sure that you can easily get back into those funds. Um, but if you forget your password or you lose your your seed phrase, then uh, it makes it really difficult. Um, the other alternative to to holding those coins yourselves is is holding those funds on uh, with a trusted counterparty. And so we've got a setup on Netcoins. Um, where you can hold funds with us. Those funds are insured through a third party. And uh, and then similar to being with a bank, if you go in and uh, you tell them that you forgot your password, you can provide some supporting documents and we can get you back into those funds. But yeah. um, just like cash, if you if you lose the lose the cash in your wallet, then, uh, then it's gone and uh, similar oh. in a digital sense. Oh man. Okay. So this guy, he's got more than $220 million US worth of Bitcoin on this thumb drive. He can't remember the password. He's only got two attempts left. Uh, what would, what would you recommend he do there? Like I, I heard, I saw one story that said that he's not going to uh, make the last two password attempts. Uh, maybe he'll just save the, save the thumb drive and hope there's some way in the future that he's able to get into the into the funds like what would you recommend that he do that he does in a situation yeah like that? yeah it's an interesting predicament i would probably go and, and contact you know some security experts and see if there's any way that they can you know replicate this situation and somehow get around or get into that that device uh, other than that I'd, I'd say you'd probably want to you know head out to the mountains and meditate and see if it comes to you <laughs> <laughs> okay okay well he has said that he has made peace with this. He's kind of accepted that he may, he may never get into this this money again. But he did say you don't need to hold any tag days for him because apparently he cashed out enough Bitcoin or he's got some in other accounts that he's 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 more rich than he knows what to do with. So I guess That's it's good. it's not too tragic uh, for for this guy. Um, okay, fascinating to talk about Bitcoin with you today, uh, Mitchell. Thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike.